Mark chapter 7. Why don't you turn your Bibles there? Mark 7, verse 1. It's page 842 in the Pew Bible in front of you. I want to talk to you this morning about uh, the Word of God and the importance of the Word of God as opposed to simply religious activity. And I want to do this just as we start this new year and finish this, this prayer week. Uh, last week we considered the uh, necessity of, of praying at all times in the Spirit. This morning I want to consider as we move into 2017 the necessity of being committed to God through His Word. And I think Mark 7, uh, I hope and trust, will be a help for us in that. So Mark chapter 7 and verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are, other, are, and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the Word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Our Father in Heaven, we come to You now and uh, our hearts are heavy for the needs in Eagle Butte. We're thankful for First Baptist Church, Eagle Butte, and Windswept Academy and our ongoing relationship with the Gospel work there. We pray for these children, we pray for these adults, and ask that you would do, as your psalmist says you do, that you would redeem lives from the pit for eternity, that you may be glorified, and that these uh, people made in your image may have eternal gain through your work. Help this church and all, Father, who work in that area um, to be faithful uh, ambassadors for our Lord. And now, Father, we come to your word and ask that you would help us. Guide us and lead us as we consider it this morning. Through your Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was on July 4th in 1852, the 4th of July, when Frederick Douglass was invited to give a speech celebrating our nation's freedom from, from tyranny and oppression. Now, the irony of inviting a former slave who had just bought his own freedom five years earlier, to celebrate liberty was not lost on Douglas. He began his speech with a question. Fellow citizens, allow me to ask why I am called upon to speak here today. What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? 
Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? Am I, therefore, called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulted from your independence? This 4th of July is yours, not mine. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and to call upon him to join you in joyous anthems were inhumane mockery and sacrilegious irony. Do you mean, citizens, to mock me by asking me to speak to you today? What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than any other days of the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your shouts of liberty and equality hollow mock, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgiving with all your religious parade are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There's not a nation on earth, he said, guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. He ended his speech with an invitation, saying, go search where you will. Roam through all the monarchies and despotisms of the old world. Search out every abuse, and when you have found the last, lay your facts by the side of the everyday practices of this nation, and you will say with me, that for revolting barbarity and shameless hypocrisy, America reigns without rival. You could imagine they were a bit shocked at the message in which he delivered. It's even shocking for us to hear it today, isn't it? Some 165 years later. It is, of course, a speech that has gone down in American history. It's Powerful prose and scathing criticism pointing out the hypocrisy of this nation which celebrates liberty and yet enslaves fellow image bearers. Now we, of course, may be very thankful, right, that the worst of these crimes are long past. And yet I wonder whether hypocrisy still remains in this land, whether, well, it may, though it may be more subtle, I think about the uh, presidential election, which we are all, I trust, very thankful is over. Although it kind of seems like it isn't over, doesn't, isn't it? You have two political candidates. The leaders of both parties seem to be not just simply racing for the office of president. They seem to be race in a race to see which one is more immoral than the other. All the while blaming the other for their gross sins. It seems to me to be hypocrisy. In our political realm, of course. But what about the people of Christ? Is there hypocrisy within the church? I would suggest to you this morning that the greatest trouble facing the church today is not this new ascending moral order. It is not Islam. It is not secular hostility. It is not academic opposition. It is not the redefinition of freedom of religion to a mere freedom of worship. I think all of those are serious threats to the church. But our greatest danger, I believe, for the church does not come from without the church, but it comes from within the church. And that nothing will destroy the church faster than moral conservatives whose hearts 
are far from God. Religious hypocrites who create an image, a a persona, because they want people to think they are better than they actually really are, right? In the, hip, the word hypocrite in the Greek is simply the word for actor. You play a role, right? Because you are living for the praise and the applause of other people. Now, by the way, this is not just a modern church problem. This has been the problem ever since there has been God's people, right? You just think about who the Lord is engaging. Who's, who's he opposing? Who's he fighting? Is it the tax collectors and the prostitutes? Is it the zealots and the Roman oppressors? No, my friends, it is those who are deeply, deeply religious. And he looks at them and he calls them a brood of vipers and sons of hell and whitewashed tombs and blind guides. There were hypocrites in the church in the days of Christ, and I think their kind remain today. And I I think this probably should not be any surprise to us. It is not of any surprise to the world. I mean, after all, how often have you invited someone to church and you have been rebuffed by the statement, well, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. And you may be tempted like I am to respond, well, not quite full. I think we have room for one more. But the accusation holds, I believe. I think that's at least the perception of the church in our world. And it would be very easy when, and I thought about doing this just kind of do a quick survey of celebrity Christians' falls. You know, when they play one role and we, re- reality catches up with them, we see they weren't the people that they said they were. They're hypocrites. But I wonder if far more alarming is kind of the everyday common hypocrisy in the church with people who say, you know, we believe evangelism is our highest priority, and yet our lives don't show that to be true. We, we believe in the sanctity of marriage, and our, our marriages within the church are not... Not that, not that much healthier than our marriages outside the church. We, we believe in the power of prayer and that God answers prayer. And, and yet we, we find ourselves often neglecting it. I think there is hypocrisy to the church. And I say with great kindness and love in my heart that you are susceptible to it. And I am susceptible to it. Right? I mean, isn't it easier to fake devotion to God than actually be devoted? Right? Isn't it, isn't it easier to say things that make us look spiritual? And I think what makes hypocrisy even more dangerous is we, we not only are times of fooling other people, we're fooling our own selves. We're pulling the wool over our own eyes. I mean, do you think, really think the Pharisees thought of themselves as hypocrites? Of course they didn't. They were the ones who were devoted to God. And, 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 and so I, I tell you, you're susceptible to it. I'm susceptible to it. And making matters worse, it's hard for us to even see in our lives. Therefore, how much more do we need the word of God to come and speak to us from outside of us? We need the words of Jesus, that the word might be a mirror for us to gaze deeply, showing us ourselves that we might not hide behind empty religious tradition. See, God doesn't want empty religious tradition. He's not interested in empty religious activities, as you know in verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some scribes who had come from Jerusalem. Now, you know the Pharisees, these guys meant separated one. They were an order created 200 years before Christ because they were very concerned that the people of God were being influenced by the pagan culture around them. And so they started this group, these men very, very devoted to God. Um, they had very strict obedience to God, very keen on keeping God's rules. They loved rules. They made up rules. They interpreted rules. They would 
enforce the rules. They would find the loopholes in the rules, and then they would come back around and fix the rules. Someone once said, talking with the Pharisees, like having a Bible study with the IRS, right? There's just rules and forms to fill out. And Jesus looks at them, these men who are amazing in their dutiful obedience to God. And to their great surprise, and maybe ours, in verse 6, he says, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? You're a bunch of hypocrites, Jesus says. Now, why? What was hypocritical about them? Well, friends, they were, they were hiding their dead hearts behind a mask of religious tradition. In this case, uh, One example will be hand washing, as you know, verse 2. They saw some of the disciples, that's the Pharisees, ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come out from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So Jesus begins to talk about this hand-washing ritual that they have. Now, this is not what you do with your kids before dinner, right? This is not, it has nothing to do with germs. They didn't even know about germs, okay? This is not about hygiene. It's about holiness. It's about ceremonial cleanliness. And they would take a a pitcher of water, and, and after rolling up their sleeves, they would pour the water on their hand, and the water would run down their hand and drip off their elbow, And they would do this in front of everyone before they would eat. This is a way to cleanse themselves from the defilement of the world around them. And you might say, well, okay, well, where do you see that in the Bible? Well, the only place that we can find something like this is in Exodus 30, where God tells the priests before they lead in public worship that they are to wash their hands. And they're to do this because a priest is going to stand between a sinful people and a holy God as a mediator, as a go-between. And so he would kind of uh, um, recognize in himself and teach to others that he himself has to cleanse himself before he kind of stands in this position. And so I trust it was a very powerful reminder of who they were and who God was. I think it was at that time very helpful. But by the time of the Pharisees, they've expanded this tradition. And it's just not priests who are washing their hands, but everyone is washing their hands. And they're just not washing their hands before temple worship. They're washing their hands all the time. You wash your hands before you eat. You wash your hands when you leave the marketplace, right? They're, they're even washing their pots and their cups and even their couches, right? The, the Mishnah, which is the Jewish record of, uh, the record of Jewish tradition, has no less than 4,000 words on how to wash correctly. Where does the water come from? How much water do you use? What is the water contained in? Does the water extend to the wrist? And on and on it goes. You see, by this time, everyone was washing all the time except Jesus and his disciples. They didn't wash. They're just digging in with nasty, defiled hands, you know, just grabbing the potatoes with their filth. And everybody is just scandalized by it. And the Pharisees want to know what in the world's going on, as you see in verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Why don't you keep our traditions? Now Jesus' answer, which we'll consider more in a moment, is your traditions are a mask. And they are hiding your true self even from you. And he is going to take that mask off and he's going to do it in a very powerful way. But before we even explore his answer, I want you to understand, my brothers and sisters, you have this danger too. You have religious tradition. And it may not be washing hands before a meal, but it's probably praying before a meal. 
and maybe you take your hat off when you do. Perhaps you fold your hands and close your eyes. Maybe you bow your head. Right? We have religious tradition. We have religious activity. Right? We're in the new year or 15 days in. I don't know how you're doing on all your resolutions. But if you're anything like me, kind of the new year starts, I double down on religious activity. Right? I'm going hard this year. I'm going to go strong this year and fervent. i got all these things that I'm going to do. We have religious tradition. And please understand that religious tradition is not necessarily bad. Traditions can be very, very helpful. The traditions can, can guide us in life and reorient our heart again and again. Traditions can provide rhythm and stability in our life, right? And these traditions, I think, are very helpful. In fact, to neglect some religious activities, flat out sin. To neglect the gathering of God's people. To neglect uh, uh, singing your praise to God. To neglect giving or, or participating in the Lord's Supper would be a, an act of rebellion against God's will. So so many religious activities are good, and yet religious activity, religious tradition can become a mask, a a subtle and deceptive cover-up to to deadness or distance in our heart. In fact, God's not impressed with our religious activity at all, is He? He wants our heart. See, God doesn't want your empty tradition. God wants your heart. These Pharisees come to Jesus and say, okay, can we talk about defilement? And Jesus says, yeah, we'll talk about defilement. I'm happy to do that. You want to talk about cleanliness? Man, your hands are clean. They are sparkling, but your hearts are sewers. Look what he says in verse 6. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus says, okay, you honor me with your lips. Okay, that's good, I guess, but your heart... Is, is not in it. Your, your hands are clean, but your heart is filthy. And he, and he explains to them, therefore, that your worship and all your traditions and all your religious activity and your church attendance and your New Year's resolution and your obedience to God, if your heart is not in it, in the words of Jesus, it is vain. It's worthless in God's sight. He wants your heart. Now, you understand he's talking to those people who are honoring God with their lips, just as you and I have done today. We go to church, we sing his praises, we, we say our prayers, and we can at the very same time have no, no real devotion for Jesus. Someone has said that the Lord's name is taken in vain far more frequently in our houses of worship than outside of it. If we lift up the Lord's name in prayer and Worship when there's no zeal for him or love for him or desire for what he has done. It is, according to Jesus, it is, verse 7, I believe it is, well, it is vain. In vain do they worship me. You see, God wants your heart. He wants your love. He wants you to draw near to him. That's what he says here. Verse 6, you're far from me. In other words, what does God want? God says, I want to be close to you. I want to be near you. God wants our heart. Okay? And that's true, but we could take that too far. We could say, okay, if God wants my heart, then, then obedience doesn't matter. Right? And then, then religious activity doesn't matter. Then external acts doesn't matter. All that matters is my heart. All that matters is, is sincerity. So I could be on the golf course on Sunday morning and I'm close to God. God has my heart. I don't need to be praising God with his people or participating in the ordinance in which he has given me. I could go do, as long as God has my heart, it doesn't matter how I live. Right? And Jesus would look at such a person and say to him, no surprise, you are a hypocrite. 
In fact, you're not just a hypocrite, you're a disobedient hypocrite, right? Because God wants your obedience. He he wants your heart and he wants your obedience. As you see in verse 8, Jesus says, you leave the commandment of God and hold fast to the tradition of of men. And again, he repeats himself, verse 9, he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. He says, not, not only don't I have your heart, you're not even obeying either. You, you're, you're leaving the commandments of God. You're rejecting God's word. For what? He says, your traditions. Over and over again, he says, let's take, let's take the fifth commandment, for example, which you, of course, know is to honor your father and mother. And he explains in verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and, whatever re- and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. You see, they have created this, uh, this tradition called Corbin. Corbin is the Aramaic word for gift or offering. And what you could do in this day is you, you could take a possession, you could take property, you could take a sum of money, and you could declare that Corbin. You could, in a sense, you're saying, this is God's. This is God's house. This is God's stuff. It's Corbin. And what happens is your mom and dad come to you and say, you know, son, we're, we really need some help. We're struggling, and uh, we're hoping you could help us. And then you get to say to mom and dad, well, you know, I really wish I could help, but all of this belongs to God. And so I, I can't do anything. If it's, I mean, you don't want me to take God's stuff, do you? Right? After all. And you see what Jesus is explaining to them. He's saying your tradition makes you look like you love God, but it's really simply a way to break God's commandments. You're hypocrites. In fact, notice what he says in verse 13. Thus making void the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down. Right? So your traditions is, is, is actually contradicting the word of God. And then he ends this passage by saying, and many such things you do. In other words, we could, we could have a hundred more examples. He says, so God wants your heart. You're far from me. Your lips are honor me, but your heart's not. But then he says, I also want your obedience. You need to keep the commandments. Your, your traditions are making void the commandments of God. And so God wants our heart. God wants our obedience. In fact, we could just put those together, can't we? God wants our, our heartfelt obedience. God wants you to obey him because you love him. Now, God has always, in the Bible, he has always linked obedience with love. Love and obedience. And I think we struggle with that because we don't feel, we feel like obedience is one thing, commandments is one thing, demands is one thing, and then love is this totally other thing. And God says, no, 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 they're together. They go together. Remember in the, in the uh, Exodus 20, God gives us the, the Ten Commandments, and here's kind of the list of kind of the core of obedience. This is what I want you to do, how I want you to live. But as you know, Exodus 19 comes before Exodus 20. And you know what God says in Exodus 19? He says, you know, um, I redeemed you from Egypt. And um, I bought you out of bondage, and you, you didn't do anything. You didn't help me at all. I defeated Pharaoh, and, and, and I did so. I, I brought you here to me because, because you've obeyed me? No, he says, because I love you. I love you. That's why you're here. That's why I rescued. I heard you cry. And I said, I love that people. And I, and I brought you here. But then he says, but if we're going to live together... Right? If, if I'm now going to be in your midst and we're going to be together, then, then this is how you, you have to live. 
right? We, th- these are the ways in which I want you to live. I want you to live. I want you to keep these commandments because you love me just like I love you, right? It's not, we don't go to God and say, okay, here's my obedience or here's my heart. No, he wants obedience done from the heart, right? He wants us to obey him because we love him. Obedience and love are always linked. Not just in, in our relationship with God, it's linked in, in all your relationships. Do you, do you remember when you were falling in love? Um, and, and you're falling in love and you're just kind of smitten and you're just kind of think about her all the time and get excited to see her. And, and, and when you're falling in love, do you know what you, know what you do? All of us do this, every single one. You, you do research when you're falling in love. You find out what does my beloved hate, right? What offends them? And you, you stop doing those things, Right? And then you find out, okay, what does she love? Or what does he love? And what does he delight in? I mean, what, what really pleases him? And then you start to do those things. You are discovering the will of your beloved. You begin to obey the will of your beloved. And you say, well, it doesn't feel like obedience. Exactly. Because you're in love. That's how love works. You can't help it. I mean, uh, we would all doubt the genuineness of your love if you say, I love this person, but everything they hate, I like to do, and everything they love, I won't do, right? We just say, well, I'm not sure that's love, right? Love begins to think about what, 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 what do you want, and I want to, to do that. See, God never says, okay, here's the rules to keep. God says, I want you to love me by keeping my rules. And we see this throughout Scripture. Remember in John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will what? Obey my commandments. Keep my commandments. Right? Or we might put it this way. If we love him, we will do the will of our beloved. So the question is, how then do we find out his will? What, where's, where's the will of God revealed? Well, here it is. That's why he gave us the word. And my friends, if you love Jesus, if you want to follow him and please him out of a heart that's captured by him, you will seek to know his will through a commitment to God's word. You see, the key to heartfelt obedience is listening to God through his word. In fact, in this passage, there are five times that Jesus says you're neglecting the commandments of God. It's most clearly there in verse 13. He says, thus making void the word of God by your traditions you have handed down. Right? They don't want the word of God. They're making void the word of God. And the reality is we can't want what God wants from us unless we allow him to speak to us. We can't say, I love you, God, but just be quiet. We need to give him opportunities to speak to us, to, to, to reveal his will to us. In fact, you know who showed us this the best? It was Jesus. I mean, how many times, you read the pages of the Gospels, how many times did Jesus say, it is written, it is written. His mind is saturated with the word of God, right? They come to him and say, hey, Jesus, what do you think about this? Oh, okay, it is written. They say, well, is this legitimate? Jesus says, it is written. You, you, they, they come and say, am I allowed to do this? And Jesus says, well, it is written. His, his whole mind is, is, is saturated with the word of God. It doesn't matter what his culture said. It doesn't matter what's the right side of history. It doesn't matter even what our own heart says. Jesus' mind is in complete agreement with the word of God. It is written. Gagraphite. It is written, he says, over and over again. But it's just not his mind. It's his will. He doesn't just agree with the word of God. He does the will of God. Right? His, his whole plans, his decisions are shaped by the word of God. So he's assaulted by the devil. And the devil says, hey, why don't you do this? And Jesus says, well, it is written that I shouldn't. 
Right? So he begins to act upon the word of God. He's assaulted in the garden of, uh, garden of Gethsemane. Remember the soldiers come and there goes Peter and he draws his sword and Peter stands in between Jesus and, and these, the temple police and Jesus says, get out of the way. Don't you think, Peter, <laughs> Peter, if I wanted to defend myself, I, I could call 12 legions of angels. And they, they would be here in a second. I don't, I don't need your help. But I'm not going to call them. Why? How else would the scripture be fulfilled? The scripture's my meat, Jesus says. It's my drink. This man does not live by bread alone, but by the, what? the word of God. His mind is conformed to the will of God. His, his will does the will of God. His, his heart is saturated by the will of God. This is perhaps seen most clearly when he's carrying his cross. His back is lacerated. He's been flogged. He's been beaten. He's, he's dying as he climbs the mountain with a 100-pound piece of lumber on his back. Right? Life is ebbing out of him, and he sees a group of weeping women. And what does he do? He quotes Hosea. They pin him to a cross. He bears the wrath of God. What does he do? He quotes Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is about to die and what does he do? He quotes Psalm 35. Right? He is, he's just totally saturated with God's Word. I just think it's Tim Keller that says, if you fall off a cliff and you see your death in the rocks below, what do you cry out? Do you think, okay, this is my last words. I really want to make them count. Right? Do you think, okay, I want to say this, but you know people are listening and that sounds kind of wimpy, so I, I'm not going to say that. No, you know what you cry out? You, you cry, what comes out of you is whatever you've already put inside of you. And so Jesus is falling off the cliff, and you know what comes out of him? Scripture. The Word of God flows out of him. His entire life is based upon the Word of God. Is yours. Let, let's get away the silly nonsense that, I, you know, I like Jesus, but I don't like these parts of the Bible. You can't, because Jesus' whole life is saturated with the Bible. He says, I'm here to do everything about, but I don't like what you say about, you know, uh, premarital sex. I don't like what you have to say about, you know, gender orientation. I don't like what you have to say about what I have to do with my money and, and all this. You, you can't have it both. You can't say, I like Jesus, but I'm going to reject the very thing that he based his entire existence on. We, we need him to speak to us from outside of us. So many people want a God who's just going to agree with what we already believe and just affirm what we already think. We need, we need to give him an opportunity to disagree with us and offend us and, and to challenge us and to move us. We need to be committed to God's word and listen to him. And when we listen to God's word, what we're doing, we're reading his word to discover his will. What is your will so that I might obey you from my heart out of my love for my beloved? Are you committed to God's word? Many many of you, I'm I'm thrilled with how many of, of you are reading, we're reading together through the Bible this year. The whole thing, right? It's going to be awesome. I've been richly blessed already and I've heard from many of you that you're richly, being richly blessed, that we're, we're reading to kind of, okay, God, what is your will? And, and we want to know God. And I, I trust that God is going to use that. But here's the problem about reading the Bible. How do we keep our Bible reading from becoming just another empty religious tradition? Right? So we're all reading, and sometimes, I don't know if you're like me, sometimes I'm just kind of running through. Have you done that? Of course you haven't, but I have. Right? I'm just getting it done today. 
wish I had more time. God help me. How do we keep it from just becoming a mask? Okay, I'm okay because I read three chapters in Genesis and uh, perused the psalm. How do we keep it from just becoming an empty religious tradition? Well, here's how. You can't just listen to Jesus through the Word. You have to love Jesus through the Word. And I think this is the most important thing I could say to you today. And so I, I hope you can really tune in here. Because what I've just told you is you go to the Bible to find out the will of your beloved in order that you can obey him from your heart. The Bible tells us the will of God. But the Bible is not primarily given to tell us the will of God. The Bible is not primarily given to tell us what to do. It is given primarily to tell us what God has done and what God is doing and what God will do. The Bible is not about you. It is about Jesus. And I, my brothers and sisters, if you go to the Bible simply and find, okay, what am I supposed to do? What is your will? What are the commandments I'm supposed to keep? They will be a crushing burden upon you. You need to read the Bible first to find out what God has done before you discover what you must do. And we need to do this because what happens is when we see what He's done... What, what happens in your heart? You begin to draw near to Him. You begin to fall in love with Him. And you, uh, you become happy to obey the, the will of your beloved. If you just go to the Bible to see what He demands without first delighting in who He is and what He has done, His demands will become a burden upon you. So let me give you an example of how this works. My wife, and I thought she was going to be in nursery, but I'm going to tell it anyways. Um, my, my wife... Um, loves to have her feet massaged, right? And every, every once in a while, I will, I will massage her feet. Now, to be honest, um, I, I don't like massaging feet, okay? I, I, feet are disgusting, aren't they? Can I get an amen anywhere? They're gross. I don't, yeah, thank you. I, I, don't like, I don't like massaging feet, but I massage my wife's feet, and, and sometimes, you know, the there's, you know, I, I get over the grossness and say, I'm going to do it, right? But if after service you said, hey, Stephen, you know, my foot is really giving me trouble. Um, would, you, would you be willing to massage my feet? That would be to me a crushing burden, right? Why? I'm massaging feet in either way. Well, it's because I love her far more than I love you, right? And so what happens is when you love when you're in love with someone, the commands in which they give you, the, the will in which they ask you to do, feel less burdensome. Sometimes they don't feel like a burden at all. The only way to obey the commands of God from your heart without it being a burden upon you is if you first have fallen in love with Him. So you come to the Bible not to hear the commands from God, like massage my feet. You come to fall in love. You allow him to tell you who he is and, and, and what's his character and what has he done and, and what's he going to do and, and what's he doing right now before you even ever get to think, okay, now what am I supposed to do? I want to engage with you. I want to fall in love with you. And by the way, this is exactly how Jesus taught us to read the Bible. Remember when he comes back from the dead and, and he's got these disciples and they're, they're walking around and, and they're all disillusioned and Jesus says, hey guys, let me give you a Bible study. And he begins in Genesis and goes through all the Old Testament. And what does he say? The Bible is about about me. 
Don't you know that all of Scripture has been pointed to that Messiah had to die and be raised from the dead? It's about me, Jesus says. It's about what I have done. And, and then he says, like in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, listen, the, the, uh, I'm not here to set aside the Bible. I'm here to fulfill the Bible. I'm going to do exactly what it said I would do. And then, and then he says things like... Um, uh, that you search, remember he says to the Pharisees, you search the word because you believe it in it, you have eternal life. He says, the word testifies to me, Jesus says. The whole Bible is about not you, it's about Jesus. But what we do is we come to the Bible and we say, okay, let me think. All right, I read this story. Point number one, what did they do? Point number two, okay, now you go do it. And often there's like point number three, and if you do, God will bless you. That is not Christian living. In fact, that will crush you. Take, for example, we're, we're, we're in jo- you guys are reading through Genesis, right? We're in this incredible story of Joseph. Remember Joseph? Sold into slavery by his evil brothers, into near death, right? They expect him to die. And what does he do? He rises up to the right hand of the greatest king in the world at that time. And his brothers, in, his evil brothers in great need come groveling before them. And what does Joseph do? He loves them. He, he forgives them. And he does everything in his power to enhance their life. And what's the moral of the story? Go be like Joseph. When people are evil against you, when people curse you, when people harm you, you are supposed to love them and forgive them and do everything you can in your power to enhance your life. Is that inspiring to you? Because it's crushing to me. Who can do that? Unless Joseph points us to a better Joseph who was not sold into simply near death by his evil brothers, but sold all the way into death and then rose up to the right hand of the king of the universe. And now he looks at his begging evil creation and he forgives them and he loves them. He does everything in his power to enhance their life. And you say, Jesus, you would do that for me. And all of a sudden you feel the strength. I want to do that for others. It is only when I fall in love with God through his word that I'll be empowered to do the will of God and it won't be hypocrisy or for you ladies take esther remember esther in the palace has everything she needs all the riches all the servants living in glory there's one problem as her people are about to be killed and she has to risk everything her her position her life what in order to identify herself as one of them to save them what's the moral of the story be like esther Whenever there's injustice, you just got to speak up and it doesn't matter the cost. It doesn't matter if it costs everything you have. It doesn't matter if it costs your life or your job or your family. You just have to be courageous and speak up. My friends, that's a crushing burden. But what if, what if Esther pointed us to a better Esther? What if it pointed us to Jesus who was in God's palace and had everything, security and peace and all the servants, and yet there was a problem. His people were about to be destroyed, and he not only risked everything, but he gave up everything in order to be more fully identified as one of his people in order to save us. And we think, Jesus, you would do that for me. Well, I want to be courageous like you. 
I want to speak up for injustice because I know I have everything I need in you and that can't be taken away. My friends, this is what the Bible's about. He's the better Adam. He, he didn't fail temptation. He aced temptation. He doesn't impute in unrighteousness to us. He imputes his righteousness to us. He's the better Abel. His, his blood is innocently shed as well, but it doesn't cry out for our condemnation. It cries out for our acquittal. He's the better Abraham. He's the one called by God to go into a foreign land in order to create a new people. He, he's the better Moses who leads us out of even a great bondage, a bondage of sin and death against the most powerful forces in the world, not by passing through the water, but by going under the water of God's judgment and wrath. He's the better David who's defeated our enemy without any help to us in order that we and I, you and I can rejoice in the spoils of his victory. It, he, it's all about him. He's the Passover lamb. He's the scapegoat. He's the rock of Moses. He's the manna. He's the tree of life. He's the temple. He's the Sabbath. He's the ark. He's the altar. He's the promised land. He's the priest and the prophet and the king. It all is about Christ. And he's given his word to say, I want to tell you who I am and what I have done for you because I want you to love me. That's why we have the word. It's not, okay, what am I supposed to do? It is, who is this God who has redeemed me? How has he done it? That he might win my heart. So we come to the Bible and we look, number one, what did they do? Point number two, we say, I can't do that. Point number three, we say, but Jesus did for me at far greater cost. And point number four, as we rejoice in the work of Christ, we now feel empowered to do it. Christianity has never been an outside-in religion. Here are the commands, now do it. It has always been an inside-out, right? I believe, I remember, I rejoice, I love, and then I obey. But you're not going to fall in love with God unless you're spending time with Him. That's why he gave us his word. He says, I want to meet with you. I want you not just to hear me, I want you to love me. I'm going to tell you what I've done and we might come to God's word and discover what he has done before we'll ever discover what he asks us to do. You know what he's done? Ultimately, he has come into this world and died upon a cross, hasn't he? And he rose three days later from the grave. He's done this in order to redeem sinful people like me and like you, people that have rejected him. He's done this because it's the only way in which we can be redeemed out of this pit. We can't climb our way out by our good deeds, our good works. He had to come down into the pit to get us, throw us upon our back, his back, and cl- take us out of it. That's what he's done. And maybe just in this word that God has, uh, has helped us understand this morning, that we see behind all our religious work, there's actually a great deal of distance between us and God. Maybe some disobedience as well. Maybe God in his kindness to you, even right now, is helping you say, listen, hey, let's take off the mask. I'd, I'd much rather you put down the mask and start walking towards me. And you take a couple steps towards me, I'll come running towards you. Let's bridge that gap. Maybe, maybe now God is saying, listen, I, I, want, I want to talk to you. I don't know why you don't talk to me. I don't know why you don't give me opportunities to, listen, to, to, to show you what I've done for you. Won't you come to me and spend time with me? Won't we, won't, can't we spend time together through his word? Maybe he's kind of working in you to take that mask off. Or, or maybe he's showing you that behind the religious activities, not distance or disobedience, maybe it's deadness. Maybe there's someone here this morning that you've been attending church your whole life, but you know in your heart it's dead in there. He hasn't have your love at all. You haven't trusted him at all. The good news I tell you this morning, based upon the authority of the word of God, is that if you will confess this morning 
with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, and if you will believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. If you by faith will bow your knee to King Jesus and say, I am a sinner, I believe you, and I give my life to you. Work in my heart even now. He will save you now and forevermore. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have given us your word. Help us not to be people just wanting to impress others because they think we're more spiritual or close to you than we really are. Just the game is so exhausting. Let work in our heart right now that the most important person opinion of us in this world is you. And we wouldn't try to pretend that we would try to, by your power, run towards you, that we would want to hear from you, we want to fall in love with you by committing ourselves to your word. Help us to do so. We pray for our friends here this morning that you love so much. And maybe they're trusting in their religious acts. Maybe they're trusting in their goodness. They think it's be, be good enough. It ought to be good enough to get into heaven. And reality, you know it's not. You didn't send your son in this world to die for good people. You sent your son in this world to die for sinners. We're all sinners. Will you not even now work in their hearts, cause them to believe that they might trust in Christ for their salvation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.